It's Thursday, September 26th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hell. Joining me in studio today from Fool.com, Matt Kuppenheffer and David Hansen. Welcome, gentlemen. Hello, Chris. David, you posted on Twitter yesterday. You're 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 excited for today. Very excited. The the honorable 501st <laughs> episode of Market Foolery. It's just it's an honor to be here on this occasion. I, I guess we don't have time for a speech, but we can. Uh, you know, you you can do a speech later after we after we shut down the microphones. Uh, but in all seriousness, thank you to the um, the many uh, congratulatory notes we got uh, via email and on Twitter. So thank you from uh, from our listeners. Um, we're going to talk about J.P. Morgan. We're going to talk about the looming government shutdown and the massive effect it's going to have on investors. He said, tongue planted firmly in cheek. Uh, and we're also going to talk about a retailer that is hitting an all-time high, uh, as well as an acquisition by eBay, which uh, is, i, I got to say, is pretty interesting. Um, but let's, let's start with uh, J.P. Morgan, because CEO Jamie Dimon, uh, I think as of this moment, maybe earlier today, at some point, was across the river in Washington, D.C., sitting down with the nice people at the Department of Justice to discuss a potential $11 billion settlement. And Matt, why are investors just shrugging this off? <laughs> because that really seems like what's happening in the market right now. Here's the thing. $11 billion is a lot of money. <laughs> uh Part of the reason that investors are shrugging it off is that this isn't this isn't a J.P. Morgan only issue. We've seen settlements across the board with all of the big banks uh, coming to terms with what they allegedly did during because most of them are not admitting wrongdoing. What they allegedly did during and uh, and prior to the financial crisis, and they're settling up for billions of dollars. The other reason that investors – they're not just shrugging it off, actually. I mean, if, if you looked at the stock yesterday when we started to see this $11 billion number, it was up almost 3% on the day yesterday. So they're actually kind of celebrating it. And I think Mr. Market, in all of his wisdom, loves to see clarity, loves, loves to know exactly what the situation is, even when that costs $11 billion or so. So – the fact that we have certainty and the old adage, the market hates uncertainty, that trumps the fact that an $11 billion fine would essentially wipe out a quarter's worth of earnings. Yeah. Yeah. To, to, <laughs> to, to the market, to the market, that is worthwhile. And, 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 I'll, and I'll point out that while the market, quote unquote, the market, whatever that is, hates uncertainty, investors should love it. Because it's, it's within that uncertainty that you can find the market doing stupid things and avoiding companies for reasons that it shouldn't. David, you like this? We should also say that the 11 billion is kind of just the number that the, I guess the government threw out there, and then the word that keeps being thrown around is this: these talks are very fluid. I was like, yeah, 11 billion—that's that's pretty fluid there. That's <laughs> um, so you talk about certainty. If that's what the government is asking for, you you almost get a little bit of a cap on. Okay, this is what we know. They're probably not going to have to pay out more than 11 billion. And just for some fun, to put that 11 billion in perspective, J.P. Morgan could go out and buy Panera. And Haynes for that eleven billion. So just to put some perspective there, I'm sorry. How, you, how'd you come up with Panera and Haynes? Would it make for a really interesting Haynes, company? Haynes, the, just, the makers just, of underwear. Just, yeah, make a make a nice conglomerate there. Um, <laughs> and to put it more in perspective, eleven billion is about five percent of J.P. Morgan's equity base. So not a huge hit there. And that's not even considering the legal reserves that J.P. Morgan's already set aside. So. Even if they do have to pay out $11 billion, it's not going to be that big of a hit to shareholders. It probably can't hurt that news also is breaking that J.P. Morgan and Morgan Stanley have been tapped by Twitter 
to help lead Twitter's IPO. What is that going to mean for the coffers at J.P. Morgan? Uh, it's it's not going to be it's not going to be a huge amount of money that they would get from that particular IPO. But I think what investors can take away from there is that you've got this headline risk that continues to be ongoing. You've got the the, the real loss of capital through paying out on, on these uh, legal risks. But then at the same time, the underlying business continues to operate, continues to do well, and apparently Twitter doesn't seem phased by the fact that uh, that J.P. Morgan's been in the headlines and it's naming the, the, the investment bank for part of this big IPO, historic IPO, I don't know, whatever you want to call it, but <laughs> <laughs> they want J.P. Morgan to be a part of it. It's going to be big. There was a story I saw yesterday, Vegas odds that- It'll be a big party. That, the, that it's going to go public at- $35 a share and we'll close opening day at 54 The over-under line has already been set in as, Vegas. As if the stock market isn't, isn't betting enough at, anyway when, when you look at how this stuff moves. eBay is buying Braintree, which is an online payment uh, service, for $800 million. And I think, David, the thought here uh, for eBay is to make this a service within PayPal. Is this is this a way to effectively expand the reach of PayPal? I think so. And when you talk about Braintree, a lot of people probably don't know that name, but one of the brands under Bra- People in Massachusetts know the name, but that's just because <laughs> it's a city in Massachusetts. Other, other than that, the brand under Braintree is Venmo. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, but that's kind of an up-and-coming peer-to-peer uh, payment system. So if you owe your friend $20, you can use Venmo and basically text it to them. So with this, they're basically taking out a competitor, expanding their reach, and, and when you look at the payments network and, and where PayPal is trying to go, okay, so they want the peer-to-peer, you uh, and I transferring payments, but they also are trying to get within stores and merchants. They're teaming up with, with Discover to do that. And when you look at the two markets, I've read some estimates, the peer-to-peer market is estimated at about $1.2 billion. So it's pretty big. Mm-hmm. But when you look at the point of sale, so in stores, that market, $6.2 trillion. So in the scheme of the payment space and what PayPal is doing, consumer p- peer-to-peer is important, but it's not the whole story. How big is PayPal becoming? You mentioned that they're in this acquisition, they are taking out a competitor. Is PayPal, they're certainly not on the order of a, of a Visa or a MasterCard or anything like that, but within their own world, are they becoming big to the point where if, you're st- if you are uh, a two- or three-year-old online payments s- or, uh, system mm-hmm. that is effectively competing with PayPal, really what you're hoping for is that PayPal and eBay are going to buy you. Sure. I, <laughs> I mean, PayPal is pay, PayPal is one of, if not the 800-pound gorilla in that space, I, I think. And and they have, they have serious competitors. Square is a big competitor, for example. That's still privately held. And, and of course, Visa and MasterCard are the big competition there because you're talking about sort of payment systems here. But what's inter- what I find particularly interesting about PayPal and, and look, looking and thinking about this acquisition is that eBay as a whole, I, I understand that there's like this auction thing that it does and it's online. It's the sort marketplace. Of, yeah, it's sort of like Amazon, but not really as good or something. But then there's also PayPal and, and everybody's really excited about PayPal. So I think it's going to be really interesting to watch eBay going forward for the impact that PayPal has. Yeah, I think I think PayPal now makes up around 40% of the revenue for eBay as a whole. So this is not just some tiny subsidiary they have anymore. And yeah. I, I think with acquisitions like this, it's looking increasingly likely that PayPal 
will ultimately be spun out into its own standalone, maybe publicly traded company. Or so. better yet, what, what Vegas should be setting the odds on is when eBay changes the company name to PayPal. There you go. If, if eBay wants to see its its valuation multiple skyrocket, change its name to PayPal and, <laughs> and start describing itself as a payment system first. Uh, we are going to touch on the looming government shutdown or the potential for it because uh, – uh, well, I'll get to why in a second, but uh, let, let's just say that uh, it's not going to be a short week next week for Market Foolery. But uh, I am pre-taping Mondays and Tuesdays episodes. I'll get to why in a minute. But because we're not going to be here um, uh, on Monday and Tuesday when the uh, shutdown date occurs, what do you guys think of that? Is it is it something you just look at and just go, "Wow, this this means absolutely nothing to me"? Or in the world of that you guys operate in, which is primarily banking and financial services, is that the only industry that uh, that this kind of thing does matter to? Maybe not the only industry, but it, it, to the extent that it has an impact, it's in it's right in your wheelhouse. I'm not looking at it. I, I honestly, a week ago, I did not even realize this was looming. <laughs> it's it's just noise. It has no impact on the long term fundamentals of a business like J.P. Morgan. Do you think? You think Twitter's like, oh, there's a government shutdown coming. Let's delay the IPO. Right. No, business is going to go on as normal. Banks are going to make a lot of money. Other businesses are going to make money. So I don't pay much attention to this. I, is Congress like tone deaf at this point? Do they not realize that 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 all of America is basically fed up with them and and that this does not help? Like th- this. Come together, get something done. This is this is just getting ridiculous, and we're seeing the market shrug, shrug it off. and And I think the market is right in doing that because the government isn't going to shut down. We've been through this now a whole bunch of times, and we know that some last minute deal is going to come together, and everybody's going to pat themselves on the back. Oh, we, we we avoided that. We did a really good job <laughs> avoiding that. And now let's let's set up the let, let's set it up for the next one so that we can feel important and 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 do this all over again next year. I kind of wish that the people who were in Congress, and I'm not saying that uh, none of them have this aspect because I think they do, but um, I, I remember um, hearing a, a really great speech one time. Henry Hyde, who was a longtime congressman from Illinois, uh, gave a speech, uh, and and he said that uh, he was often asked to speak to freshman members of Congress when they – get to Washington, D.C. for the first time. And the advice he always gave them was the same thing, which was, you need to know, yes, you need to have loyalty to your party and you need to do right by your constituents and that sort of thing. But you need to understand within yourself, what are the issues that you are willing to lose your seat over? What are the things that you just, as as an individual, you say, you know what, I am willing to lose my seat over this vote I am about to cast. And I think that there are not enough people in Congress who adopt that attitude. And that's un- that's unfortunate because this this is one of those times where it's like, you know what, the whole notion of compromise becoming a four-letter word, that's that's really in some ways the most disappointing thing going on. To, to answer your, your one question about does this affect financials, there might be some people out there and saying, well, banks hold a lot of treasuries. They hold a lot of agency mortgage-backed securities. How is this going to affect – the credit rating, maybe we'll get downgraded again. That's bad news, right? Well, no. Actually, last time when the U.S. government was downgraded, their credit rating, interest rates actually went lower after that. So more people wanted to buy treasuries. So it's kind of just ridiculous to, if you even think, okay, if we get downgraded, there's going to be a huge crisis. That didn't happen last time. I don't think that would happen this time. 
and if I if I take my cynical hat off for for a second here, realistically, what investors should be doing is continuing to do what they're always doing, researching the companies that they're invested in, understanding the business, understanding the long term perspective. In investing, there are a lot of things that can affect your affect your investment that you don't have control over, and so it doesn't really help to spend a lot of time worrying about them and trying to predict them when you're not going to be able to. There are some things that you can understand and you can evaluate, and so it's better to spend your time on those things rather than stuff like this, where it's basically it's a coin flip. A couple of housekeeping notes. Uh, I mentioned uh, pre-taping uh, early next week, so we're having a mini version of Strategy Week on Monday and Tuesday next week on Market Foolery, uh, and that's because uh, I am heading up to Toronto. Uh, so for our Canadian listeners, I am hosting an event, an investing event, on Tuesday, October first, at the University of Toronto. This is for Canadian investors, uh, and wherever you are, you can watch the event. We're going to stream it online. All of the details are online at our Canadian website, which is fool.com. I'm sorry, fool.ca slash October 1. Let me say that again. www.fool.ca slash October 1, and that's the number one. Uh, And you'll see all the details for the event. On yesterday's podcast, I mentioned... Uh, I read an email that we got from one of our listeners uh, where he cited another podcast, Econ Talk. Um, I, I do have to say that that's a great podcast. I'm, I'm not – I think long-time listeners know I'm not in the business of promoting other podcasts. But um, Econ Talk, which is hosted by Russ Roberts, who is uh, an economist we've had speak here at The Motley Fool at events we've had. He is as entertaining as an economist gets and an incredibly bright guy. So um, that's one to check out, uh, Econ Talk, hosted by Russ Roberts. Uh, final story, shares of Bed Bath & Beyond hitting an all-time high this morning. They had some solid second quarter profits. As good a year as the overall market has had, David, up about 18% year to date. Bed Bath & Beyond has doubled that. I'm blown away by this. I don't even remember the last time I walked into a Bed Bath & Beyond. What's going on here? I had the same same <laughs> feeling. I mean, you mentioned that we spend most of our time talking about, about banks and, and financials there. So I'm not intimately familiar with Bed Bath & Beyond. But I went back and looked at the numbers. And for some comparison, let's look at it compared to Target here. Uh, both trade at around 15 times earnings. So similar multiples there. But over the last five years, Bed Bath & Beyond has grown revenue 10% annually. Target's only grown it at about 2.5% annually. So it looks like the business is performing well. I guess people are going in and using those 20% off coupons. I know I only shop at Bed Bath & Beyond when I have coupons, so I guess more people are doing it. And Target is more than twice the size just from a market cap mm-hmm. standpoint. Matt? You said you hadn't been to a Bed Bath & Beyond in a while, right? You Have you? Mm-hmm. It, it, what's amazing, there's a Bed Bath & Beyond right near us, and it's actually right across from a Target. So we end up over in Bed Bath & Beyond every once in a while. I dare you to walk into one of those and not walk out with something. I don't know what it is about the way they have the stores set up, the product selection, whatever. So from, from, a, from a business and operating and, and product selection perspective, I think they're doing something right because I walk in there and I'm, I hate shopping, but I walk in there and I'm like, I need one of everything that is in here. <laughs> I need all of those can openers. I need five of those towels. Yeah, I, I, I from a from a company perspective, I think they're doing something right there. And let's be clear, this is not a company that is crushing it in e-commerce. Right. So the success they have is in almost entirely due to 
the bricks and mortar locations. They have over a thousand locations across North America. It's the way of the future. I, <laughs> I, but w- what you just said makes me wonder if they, we've we've had Jim Senegal, the, the co-founder of Costco here at the Motley Fool, a couple of times. He is famous for doing his what he terms his term his death marches through Costco locations. I'm and what he's doing there is trying to figure out what is the customer experience in each one of the Costco locations. Do they have everything in the right place? Should they be moving different items from one section of the store to the other? And what you just said makes me wonder if Bed Bath & Beyond has their own sort of mini Jim Sinegal who is going to different locations and thinking long and hard about how can we make the customer experience because uh, – to. Honestly, I go into places. That's that's your homework, by the way. I, find a Bed Bath and I Beyond will find and go one, in. I will go in, but the la- I'm trying to think. The last comparable location I can think of is maybe a Pier One Imports, mm-hmm. and I, the last time I was in one of those places, I got a little frightened. It struck me as as sort of the home furnishings version of a corn maze, <laughs> uh, like it, it, where I I just got lost over and over, and I I was like, thank God I don't have my kids with me because I would never find them. Well, th- this is kind of more anecdotal than actual. I have, don't have hard data on this, but it, it seems like this bed, is a podcast. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, feel free to speculate rampantly. It's, it seems like Bed Bath and Beyond their stores aren't huge and sprawling. I would I would guess that they are, are pretty efficient in terms of square footage. I mean, do you feel that way too? Uh, bed Bath and Beyond stores aren't enormous. They usually have a pretty well tight and th- layout, and that's part of the success of Macy's, right? Mm-hmm. Macy's is fanatical in a good way about managing their footprint and. Uh, getting that revenue per square foot number as high as they can get it. Well, yeah, they don't tend to be really big. What, what I've noticed, they tend to be really tall. There's always <laughs> things like way up high. And I'm I'm a short guy, so I <laughs> things that aren't that high look really high to me. They probably sell like rocket boosters in there somewhere. You said they have everything. everything. You can find it. everything. One of everything. All right, I'll, I'll try and find a location and, and report back. All right, David Hanson, Matt Copenheffer, thanks for being here. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Ann Henry. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you on Monday. (laughs) 